In your Bibles this morning, would you turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19? Leviticus chapter 19 this morning. I just have to make a quick comment on the video that we watched. Um, Paige made a comment about coercing me to eat Vegemite. I don't know if any of you have had this. Steer clear. Steer clear from Vegemite. Um, there are definitely some things that I believe God never intended to be food, and a Vegemite was one. You know how there are times when you don't, you've never had something before, and you just look at it, and your mind tells you, that's not going to taste good. And maybe occasionally you actually try it, and you find out, well, you know what, looks can be very deceiving, it tasted great. That was not the case with Vegemite. My, my mind was telling me, don't eat it. My, my heart was saying, you're going to you know, regret it. And um, my body tried to reject it once I did eat it. Um, I can say that I've eaten Vegemite, and I can safely say that I'll never go anywhere near it again. Thank you, Paige, for that. Um, she guilted me so bad when I didn't have it at first, and so I had to, to keep some honor to my name, and I wish I never did. Uh, Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 this morning. In a moment, we'll look at just one verse uh, as we look at what I've titled this morning's message, The Mystery of Holiness. The Mystery of Holiness. As we continue what we started last week, looking at the holiness of God, I'm going to attempt to define the word holy. And I say attempt because by the end of our message this morning, you're going to realize that I never really actually defined it. Bear with me. I mentioned last week that I was going to try and hold off on defining the word holy, and that was partly because I want us to get a better sense of what holiness looks like, specifically in reference to God in the Bible, and partly because holiness is just a very difficult word and concept to define. The definition of holiness cannot be contained in a single word or even a single sentence or, or an entire paragraph because holiness is so much more than, than one word or one idea. Uh, you would think that it'd be as simple as just opening up the dictionary and looking up the word holy and finding what it says there. And the dictionary, I looked it up, it does define the word holy as dedicated or consecrated to God or a religious purpose, morally and spiritually excellent. Sounds good. Uh, Bible dictionary defines the word holy as separation or setting apart. Now, as good as these definitions are and, and may be, and as much as they may contain elements of what holiness is and what it looks like, I don't believe that any dictionary can adequately define the word holy. In some sense, the word holy or holiness is a foreign word and it is foreign to every language, so there, there's no way to, to rock-solidly have a definitive answer to this. In Psalm 139, verse number 6, this may be a familiar psalm to most of us, David states, he says, such knowledge, he's thinking about God and the greatness of God and just how vast God is. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, he says, I cannot attain unto it. That is, I think, a good way to look at the holiness of God. That it is just, 
way well above and beyond what our minds could ever comprehend, much less what a dictionary could contain in a few words or a few thoughts. There is no language that can properly define holy. And what makes matters worse is that the word holy is used in several different ways in the Bible. There are some instances where the word holy is used to describe the goodness of God, but holiness is so much more than just the goodness of God. In many instances, the word holy is used to also describe the purity of God. But again, holiness is so much more than just the purity of God. And because of this, many of us, when we think of the word holy, we attach that word purity to it. It must be something that is pure. And again, that's not wrong, but there is so much that is left out when we limit holiness to goodness or limit holiness to just the purity of God. Purity is often the first word that comes to mind when we think about the holiness of God, that he is pure in in every aspect, and that is true. But the Bible uses the word holiness this way, but in many other ways as well. Uh, The idea of purity, the idea of moral perfection is at best only a secondary meaning of the word holy. When the seraphim that we looked at last week in Isaiah chapter 6 When the seraphim sang about the Lord on the throne, they were saying so much more than that God is purity, purity, purity. Or that God is good, good, good. I think the main meaning of the word holy has this idea of separate to it. It is distinct, it is separate, it is unique. This comes from the Hebrew word which literally means to cut or to separate. The idea being that whatever is spoken of in the context of being holy is a cut above everything else. It is separate and distinguished between everything else that is being described. As a a kid, I I grew up collecting a lot of baseball cards. And I remember coming across a pack of cards when we were at the grocery store and in the checkout line. They would always put the neatest stuff in the checkout line. All the candy, baseball cards would be there. And of course, as we're going through, I'd beg and plead for my mom to get me a set of these baseball cards. And I found one set, one package that had the words, a cut above, written on the outside of the package. And I remember thinking, this has got to be the coolest set. And of course, my mom wouldn't buy them for me. So I had to work up my own money and earn enough. And I went and finally was able to buy a package of baseball cards. And I remember when I I opened up this package of baseball cards, again, with the words, a cut above, literally spelled out on the front of the outside package. I remember opening them up and I remember finding out that these were the best of the best baseball players. They're, They're all retired now. They're all in the Hall of Fame now. But these were... Truly, baseball players that were a cut above the rest. They weren't the the average, ordinary players, but these were the ones who would be in the Hall of Fame one day. These were the ones who did greatness on the baseball field. They were more above and beyond just the regular, everyday player. They were the ones that the names of which everyone would know now if we mentioned them. The word holiness, I think, has this kind of idea attached to it, where when we speak about God and God being holy, he is a cut above. He is standing out from the rest. But there's still so much more than just that. There's this idea of separateness as we consider how to define holiness. But again, God's holiness is so much more than just being separate from everything else and everyone else. God's holiness is also transcendent. Now, 
The word transcendent means to, to climb across, to kind of bridge this gap, usually in reference to something exceeding unusual limits or the usual limits. So basically when we talk about God being separate and being transcendent, we're saying that, that God is head and shoulders above everyone or everything else. To transcend is to rise above something or to rise above someone, to go above and beyond what normal limits have been established. When we speak of the transcendence of God, we're essentially talking about God being much higher and much greater and much more powerful than anything we have ever seen or anything we can ever imagine. In other words, transcendence describes the supreme and absolute greatness of God. We often use the word transcendent to describe God's relationship with the world here. That he is higher than the world in which he created. That he has full and complete control over every part of his creation. Which by definition means that the world has no power and no control over the God which created it. Does that make sense? God is the one who has created all things and so he has power and control over everything. Not the other way around which we can sometimes get confused. So this idea of transcendence, it really helps us to understand that God is exalted above all power, that God is exalted above all wealth, that God is exalted above all wisdom and, and everything here in this world, above all nature. He's exalted above it all. So as we think about God being a cut above, if you will, he is an infinite cut above everything and everyone else. A theologian by the name of Stephen Sharnock he said this about the existence and the attributes of God. Now, it's a little lengthy quote, but just pay attention to what he says. Since we cannot have a full notion of God, we should endeavor to make it as high and as pure as we can. All the perfections of God are infinitely elevated above the excellencies of the creatures, above whatsoever can be conceived by the clearest and most piercing understanding. The nature of God as a spirit as infinitely superior to whatsoever we can conceive perfect in the notion of a created spirit. Whatever God is, he is infinitely so. He is infinite wisdom, infinite goodness, infinite knowledge, infinite power, infinite spirit, infinitely distant from the weakness of creature, infinitely mounted above the excellencies of creatures, as easy to be known that God is, as impossible to be comprehended what God is. Conceive of God as excellent without any imperfections, a spirit without parts, great without quantity, perfect without quality, everywhere without place, powerful without members, understanding without ignorance, sense without reasoning, light without darkness infinitely more excelling than the beauty of all creatures, than the light of the sun, pure and unviolated. He exceeds the splendor of the sun, dispersed and divided through a cloudy and a misty air. And when you have risen to the highest, conceive God, yet infinitely above all you can conceive of spirit, and acknowledge the infirmity of your own minds. And whatsoever conception comes into your minds, say, this is not God. God is more than this. If I could conceive him, he were not God. For God is incomprehensibly above whatsoever I can say, whatsoever I can think, and whatsoever I can ever conceive of him. Now that is a, a long quote, 
but I, I hope you kind of understood what he's saying. This is really what makes this so difficult to define an attribute of God because God is infinitely greater than our greatest idea of him. Therefore, when the Bible speaks of God being holy, it is meaning that God is transcendently separate. God is so far above and beyond us that he almost seems completely foreign to us. Our minds cannot comprehend his greatness. We cannot comprehend the depths of his majesty, his glory, and his perfection. And yet at the same time, as the theologian says, God has made himself unknown and available to us. And it's just mind-boggling to consider this incredible God who we serve. I suppose that is why we're simply told that God is holy. God is holy. And the verse that I'd like to draw your attention to this morning is Leviticus 19 and verse number 2. There's any of a handful of verses that I could have drawn your attention to that, that mention some of the key words and phrases that are mentioned here in this verse. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 19, Leviticus 19. And I'll read verse 1 just for the sake of context. Leviticus 19 verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, the context here, God is speaking to the nation of Israel through Moses, and he is giving them instructions to be holy, for God is holy. Now, the context here of Leviticus 19 specifically is dealing with personal conduct. We're not going to get into the context here, but just this first idea that is expressed in verse number 2, that we are to be holy because our God is holy. This truth is also repeated in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16. And the Bible says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So the instruction is clear enough. There's no ambiguity here. It's very clear. It's not vague at all. God says, Be holy, for I am holy. Clear enough, simple, straightforward, and yet we struggle to do what God has instructed. We struggle to even understand what God means when he says that he is holy and that we are to also be the same. Now, theologians have devoted countless years trying to figure out what it means to be holy. And all they have come up with is that God is infinitely higher and greater than what we will ever be. Now, we, while we may not understand all that there is to know about God's holiness, there are a few things that we can understand. If God is holy, then we must conclude for us to be holy means that we are to be separate, means that we are to be distinct. It is in a very special and unique way. God is unique from anyone and anything that we will ever see. But what is interesting is that as we take a closer look at the word holy, we find that throughout the Bible, we have the word holy used to describe earthly things. When God appeared to Moses in the form of a burning bush, he instructed Moses to remove his shoes. If you remember what he said, he said, for the ground upon which you stand is what? Is holy. Okay, so now this is a, a, a God attribute, right? If we're going to call it an attribute, a God attribute of holy, now it's described to something earthly. The ground upon which you stand, he says, is holy ground. When God spoke about work that should be done six days a week, he declared that the seventh day should be a day of rest, and he called it, he says, the holy Sabbath. In the days of the tabernacle, later on in the days of the temple, one particular section 
was known as the holy place. And then beyond that holy place was the innermost section of the tabernacle and later the temple, which was then referred to as the what? The holy of holies. It wasn't just good enough to be holy. That was the, the holy place. But then there was the most holy place or the holy of holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant resided. This is where the, the presence of God dwelled. This is where the high priest once a year would go on the Day of Atonement and offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. Uh, on, on several occasions, the city of Jerusalem was also referred to as the holy city. On two occasions, the children of Israel are referred to as the holy seed. And on two occasions, believers are referred to as an holy nation. So it's, it's kind of, it's hard enough to understand what holy means in reference to God. And then God has to go and throw us a bigger curveball and say, well, I'm going to use this word also to describe other things that aren't God. And these are just a handful. There's a, there's a longer list of different things that are called holy on the earth. Now, again, few occasions where the word holy is used to describe things and people of earth. If you search the word holy in the Bible, what you find is that in every case, it is applied to something of earth. It is, it is always expressing something other than moral or ethical quality. The things that are described as holy are distinguished and they're set apart from everything else. The things that are described as holy are different than those things that are common and specifically are consecrated to the Lord and for his service. And these things are not holy in themselves because of what they are. Just because God told Moses that the ground upon which he stood was holy ground does not mean that all ground is holy. That's not what he's saying. For something to become holy, it must be first consecrated to the Lord or sanctified by God. The only one who is holy in himself by just his existence is God. Therefore, only God can sanctify someone else or something else and make that which was previously common and ordinary and normal and make it holy. Think about how the Old Testament speaks of those things that have been made holy by God. Whatever is holy carries a particular character. It has been set apart for some specific use. It may not be handled the same way that it once was handled prior to God consecrating it. It may not be eaten. Certain foods are no longer to be eaten. It cannot be used the same way it was previously used because now God has consecrated it and now it is special. Now it is holy. And this then brings us to this idea of purity. So often we associate purity with holiness. Even if we acknowledge that there is much more to holiness than just something being pure or just God being pure, purity is still recognized as part of this umbrella that is holiness. And when we think of purity, we think of it in the sense usually of ethical perfection. When things are made holy, they are set apart for their purity, to be not tarnished by anything else. They cannot anywhere anymore be used for normal practices. They are now sacred and devoted to the service of the Lord. They should be used in a very pure way and they are to demonstrate purity in everything that they are used for. What we find is that purity, again, falls under this umbrella of holiness. But if we have to understand, we, we need to understand that holiness, again, is so much more than just purity. And this is why I waited to define this word holy. And I probably should have waited a little, a little bit longer because it is so hard to define. Even when we describe God as holy, which he is, God is in every way holy. We run into so many problems. 
One of the ways we describe God is, is by coming up with a list of qualities that we call attributes. And we can run down the list and we can say God is, God is love, God is pure, God is uh, joy, God is... And fill in the blanks so we can think of something. We may say something like God is spirit, God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, God is loving, God is just, God is merciful, God is gracious, and, and so on. And our tendency is to add the word holy to such lists that we come up with and then just call it a day. God is gracious, God is loving, God is merciful, God is holy, period. Done. And, our, and, and as we do this, it's as if God's holiness is just one of many different attributes. But the problem that we run into is that when we ascribe the word holy to God, it doesn't signify just one single attribute. When we say that God is holy, or, or better yet, when the Bible says that God is holy, it is calling attention to everything that God is. We're saying that God's love for us is truly a holy love. We're saying that God's justice is a holy justice. We're saying that God's mercy is a holy mercy. We're saying that God's knowledge is a holy knowledge. We're saying that God's spirit is a holy spirit. It is transcendently above everything else. It is separate. It is a cut above. And again, this isn't even doing it justice. We have seen how the word holy, again, calls attention, calls attention to the transcendence of God, which is just above and beyond the normal limits of what we've accepted to be right. God is infinitely above all of that. And so the love that he shows is infinitely above all of that. The justice that he shows is infinitely above all that. The mercy, again, all of it is infinitely above the greatest idea of him. When God shows us those things, and he is those things, God is love, merciful, gracious, it is infinitely above the greatest idea of all of those attributes. We have also seen that God can reach down and consecrate things of this world and make them holy, even though nothing of this world is holy in and of itself. Only God can make things holy because only God is inherently holy. Early in the 20th century, there was a, a German scholar by the name of Rudolf Otto. He, he made an interesting and really an unusual study of the word holy. Otto examined how people from different countries and different cultures interact with the things that they consider to be holy. He compared the human feelings that people have when they meet someone that they feel is holy or they deal with something that they consider to be holy. And the first important discovery that Otto made was that people have a difficult time describing what it means to be holy. Well, join the club. They have a difficult time defining what it means to be holy. He noticed that while everyone could say something, something to somewhat describe the object or the person that they revered so much as to why they viewed him to be holy or why they viewed this object to be holy, there was always something left out that they couldn't explain. Why? You know, there, there was something more different, more distinct about the person or the object that they just couldn't formulate in the proper words. And this is what we find when we describe God as holy. We might be able to formulate some attribute list that would correctly describe God to some degree, but there is always something more that our words fail to express about God. There is something supernatural that cannot be explained in our words and leaves us completely speechless, speechless. Even when we've gone and we've exhausted every list of attributes that we can think of to describe God, we feel like there's still something missing and just can't get the words. 
As Otto realized the same, he came up with a term to describe the word holy, and his term was mysterium tremendum, which literally means the awful mystery. This is how he described it. He said, The feeling of it may at times come sweeping like a gentle tide, pervading the mind with a tranquil mood of deepest worship. It may pass over into a more set and lasting attitude of the soul, continuing, as it were, thrilling, vibrant, and resonant, until at last it dies away and the soul resumes its profane, non-religious mood of everyday experience. It may burst in sudden eruption up from the depths of the soul with spasms and convulsions, or lead to the strangest excitements, to intoxicated frenzy, to transport, and to ecstasy. It has its wild forms and can sink into an almost grisly horror and shuddering. It has its crude, barbaric antecedents and early manifestations, and again it may be developed into something beautiful and pure and glorious. It may become the hushed, trembling, and speechless humility of the creature in the presence of whom or what? In the presence of that which is a mystery, inexpressible, and above all creatures. In other words, what he says is that through all of his studies on the word holiness, he has no idea what it means. He cannot properly describe it. It's a scary mystery, he says. As much as he's found out about what holiness is, he says he's terrified about what he hasn't found out, about what he cannot properly express in words. Even though we have a good idea, at least we think, of what holiness is, the part that we don't know, the part that we can't explain about the holiness of God, it's a mystery to us, and it remains a mystery to us. It can be terrifying at times. It shouldn't be, though, right? Because all that God says in Leviticus 19, in verse number 2, he says, "Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. There's no further explanation of what holiness looks like. Just a simple statement to be holy because God is holy. And you may be thinking, well, that, that, that's a very simple statement, right? It should be easy enough. Holiness should be easy enough to pursue and should be easy enough to, to achieve because in a matter of a few words, it says, you shall be holy. Done, right? I can do that. What does that mean? I have no idea. It's a mystery. But the simplicity of the statement makes us think that it should be easy enough for us to achieve. But at times when we start digging into this, we find ourselves more like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 where we're trying to figure out, God, what does it mean to be holy? And the more we find out that we don't know, we find ourselves crying out like Isaiah, woe is me, I am undone. I am undone. Because the more we realize about God, the more we understand about him and, great, and greater appreciation we have of him, the more we realize how undone we are in his presence. How humble we are before him. The more you find out about holiness, the more you realize it is so far above and beyond what we are and what we have ever been. I was holding Levi the other day, and he was tired, cranky. He just needed a diaper change and to be put down for a nap. I just need to specify that. I was trying to get him to settle down a little bit, and I was talking to him, hoping that I might be able to convince him, a five-month-old, that he's not tired, that he can sit still for just a few moments, hoping that I might be able to convince him. And then it hit me, you know, we are like little babies. We are like little babies to God who cannot do anything without the help of God. Levi can't do much of anything without Ruthie and I helping him. This little child literally depends on his parents doing everything for him. The only thing he can do is, is just cry. Let us know that he either needs a diaper change, that he's hungry, or he's tired. 
This is all that he can do. He is literally, his life is hanging in the balance and his parents, Ruthie and I, are the ones that are in control. Pray for us. Pray for him. He, his existence literally depends upon us. We're completely helpless human beings when it comes to living up to God's instructions and expectations for our lives. We don't even know what it means to be holy, and yet we're told to be holy for our God is holy. That's like me trying to convince my five-month-old to not scream and yell at me, to change his own diaper, to feed himself. Good luck, right? It's like speaking a foreign language to him. It's like God telling us, be holy for I'm holy. What does it mean to be holy, God? I'm digging into the Bible. I'm trying to study what it means to be holy. And the more I find about you, God, the more I realize I have no idea what it means to be holy. And I'm realizing how humiliated I am as I consider my position before a holy God. Even when God has told us what to do, simple instruction here. Ye shall be holy. It's clear. We still struggle with doing it, much less do we even have the ability to do it on our own with what he's instructed. Isaiah 55 and verses 8 and 9 tell us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It is incredibly humbling to come to the end of yourself and to realize that something so simple as being holy should be so incredibly difficult to achieve, much less define. And then you realize and you feel completely helpless when you read verses like Job 11, verses 7 through 9, which state, Canst thou, by searching, find, find out God? Canst thou fi- find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven, what canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Job, he's acknowledging this about God. He says, who can know you? Even if we spent our entire lives searching the scriptures, studying only you, God, who can know you? Who can define you? Who can explain everything there is to explain about you? God, he says, the knowledge of you, it extends farther than the scope of the earth. We can't. Even if we circumnavigate the entire earth and learn everything there is to know about this planet, we still don't know you. It is unbelievable to think our minds cannot begin to comprehend the length and the depth of the wisdom and the power and the knowledge of God. It is far too great for us. Listen to what it says also in Proverbs 30 and verses 2 through 4. Proverbs 30, verses 2 through 4, it says, Surely I am more brutish than any man. I have not the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy. Well, that's every one of us. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? 
who hath bound the waters in a garment, who hath established all the ends of the earth. What is his name, and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? Have any of you ever collected the, the waters of the world in your hands before? Any of you done that? No? Any of you ever done anything that's described there? Were any of you even there the day of creation to see God even create it all, much less have a hand in it, where God said, all right, I got day one, you get day two? No. We can't. What is his name, says, what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? In order to understand the depths of God, we must be comparable to him. Can any of us say that at any point we have done what God has done? And this is what this verse is, is explaining here in Proverbs, that none of us can say, I know what it is to be holy. I know the knowledge of God because I've been there and done that. None of us can. We don't even remotely understand the power and the ability of the Almighty God, much less His holiness. One additional, one additional passage on this theme in Romans chapter 11 Verses 33 and 34, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? See, the truth of the matter is that when we begin to dig into the definition of God's holiness, the more we uncover You've seen those old cartoons when the, the, the cartoon, the, the picture of the individual, whatever it is, the cartoon character, his mind just gets blown, smoke from the ears, and just hair stands up and all that. That's what we do. The more we uncover about God, the more poof. Holy cow. I knew so little, and I still know so little. The more we learn, the more we realize how little we know. The more we understand about God, the more we conclude that God cannot be fully understood. So while it may be impossible to cherry-pick a few attributes of God here and there and, and fully explain them, God's holiness is never exhausted. As confused as you may be by the end of this message, and I apologize, I hope that at the very least, your appreciation and your view of God has increased. And I hope that it's just exponentially and infinitely increased. Because sometimes we can go through seasons of life where we bring God down to our level. Not intentionally. We don't go out and say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to humanize God for a short while. I'm going to make him more like me. I need to be able to relate, whatever, whatever the issue may be. We don't do this intentionally, but we do this nonetheless. And when we do, our view of God's power, our view of all the many attributes of God becomes diminished because now he's no longer the almighty God who is infinitely a cut above everything else. Now he's down on earth and he's one of us and now he's powerless. Now he's limitless and the whole scope of his unending power and majesty and glory and knowledge has now diminished. We stop viewing him as the almighty God who has infinite nature, who has infinite power and in nature and creation. We start viewing God with limitations and deficiencies. And this really comes out in our prayer life. And we see this quite a bit when we pray and are doubting when we pray that God even has the ability to do such things that we're asking him to do. If our view of God were as high as it should be, if we were able to understand the fullness of God, would any of us ever worry? Do me a favor, shake your head no. 
you would never worry. You would never worry if your view of God were as high as it should be. You would never worry about a thing. Even in the things of God that we're able to understand, we forget about those things and need to be reminded of just Christianity 101, God 101, the basics, the foundational things that we can comprehend, even those things we forget about. But this mystery of God's holiness is one area that we will struggle with because without his help, we will never understand it. The more we understand about the holiness of God, the more we understand just how human we are. What I mean by that is, with more understanding of God's holiness, we begin to realize just how big the gap is between us creatures and our creator God. The more we realize our creatureliness, I think I made up a word there. Maybe it's a legitimate word, but I think you get the idea. The more we realize our position of humility, not necessarily that we're coming before God in humility, but our position of humility. We are just nothing compared to our creator and holy God. When we're more aware of God's presence as creator, it really begins to sink in that there are some drastic differences between him as creator and we as his creations. I had a professor in college who I just, I love to pick his brain. And I remember one of the first times I asked him a question on one specific passage of scripture, and I remember him just, the answer he gave just blew my mind. I thought I knew how he was going to answer, and I just wanted to ask because I wanted to see if his answer was the same as mine. And the answer he gave was just like, I, I no words. I literally never thought that that was there and it was right there. You said it. Wow. Mind blown. He pointed something out in scripture that I'd never seen before in a passage that I knew, I thought, better than the back of my own hand. Apparently, I don't know the back of my hand all that well. But not that I thought I was even equal on a level that he was. But at that moment, I realized there was a significant gap. And there probably should be professor, students, so there, there probably should be not an equal level of knowledge, but there probably should have been a gap. I'll read books by men like Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody and just great theologians from time past, and I'll find myself thinking that these men could run circles around us with their knowledge of God's Word. And, and sometimes you may read people, you may meet people who cause you to examine yourself and you find that you're lacking uh, knowledge and so much knowledge in comparison to them. But with God, this is taken to a whole new level. This is taken to a level that we can't even fathom. The more we learn about God, we're not left concluding that God simply knows more than we know. We're left concluding that God is infinitely greater than us in every single way. When we meet the infinite God, we are all of a sudden fully aware of the fact that we are finite beings here on this earth. When we meet the eternal, we realize just how temporal our lives really are. We're almost left crying out to God like Jeremiah did in Jeremiah 20 verse 7 where he said, O Lord, thou hast deceived me and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I and hast prevailed. It almost seems as if Jeremiah had, had a bad case of stuttering here. Thou hast deceived me and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I and, I was and, and thou hast prevailed. If God deceived him, of course Jeremiah is going to be deceived. If God overpowered him, of course Jeremiah was going to be overpowered. What Jeremiah was doing here was more using the Hebrew, Hebrew use of repetition to apply extra emphasis. 
Jeremiah was feeling so incredibly helpless and so incredibly overwhelmed before the absolute power and majesty of the Almighty God. He was much like Isaiah was in Isaiah 6 when he was in the temple and felt completely undone and just destroyed, shattered at the presence of the glory of God. In that moment, Jeremiah was fully aware of his creatureliness before his holy creator God. Now having the reminder that we are creatures is not always pleasant. Those words from Satan's temptation to Eve in the garden are very hard to erase from our minds. Ye shall be as gods. We know that it's wrong, but our minds kind of tell us, maybe you can be. Maybe we are. Maybe God is more down at our level than what we think, or maybe we're at more at his level than what we want to think. They're hard to erase, and it's crazy to think about it because we all know better. We know better that none of us shall ever ascend to be gods. And yet we feel completely undone and overwhelmed when we realize our creatureliness before the God of all creation. We, we, we know that we're not gods. We know that we'll never become equal to God. And yet when that is pointed out to us, when it's pointed out how we're nothing compared to our God, it is incredibly humbling. We feel like we're completely undone. It's often the case that we're reminded of our finite condition when a person dies. Death has a way of frightening us. It even frightens believers at times. The thought that we will someday die is the thought that we try to remove from our minds as far away as possible. I don't want to talk about it. Don't talk about it. So some of us won't even go to funerals at all because just thinking about it, being in the same room when all that's being talked about is death is not something that we want to be part of. And the reason is because death reminds us that we're creatures and that we're not gods. But as terrifying as death can be, death is nothing in comparison to meeting the holy God. When we encounter God, the fullness of our creatureliness breaks apart and shatters the myth that we have believed about ourselves, that we are junior gods, just a step beneath God himself. Here's God, and then here's us. So the gap isn't as big as what people like to say it is. That's what we like to think. The truth is that we are mortal creatures, and mortal creatures have all sorts of fears. Some people are afraid of spiders. Some are afraid of the dark. Some are afraid of crowded spaces. Some are afraid of heights. Whatever you're afraid of, these fears have a way of disturbing our inner peace. Our ultimate fear, though, should be God. And the reason is because he is holy. God is too great for us. God is too awesome. God makes difficult demands on us, yes, and his presence causes us to tremble and to hide. Meeting God personally might also be our greatest fear, especially if we do not truly know him. What is crazy is that even those who do know him as their personal God, we find that we hardly know him. The mystery of holiness may still be a mystery to you even after today. But I pray that our love, I pray that our appreciation, I pray that our view and our fear of God may be greater today as we've taken just a closer look at the holiness of God and maybe uncovered more of the lies that we have been hiding behind, revealing our true position before the holy God of the universe. Would you bow before our Lord today in prayer.
Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for a, a quick lesson on holiness, and Lord, and even though it seems that we've pointed out more about what we don't know than what we do know, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to have such an infinitely high view of who you are. And Lord, the moment that we try to put you in a box, the moment that we try to explain you entirely in a matter of a few sentences or even paragraphs, whatever it may be. And Lord, we have just limited the scope of who you are. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to have a proper view of you that is always increasing every single day and that we realize that our place before you is in utter humility. I ask, Lord, that you would help us as you very clearly instructed us to be holy, for you, our God, are holy. Help us in this lifelong pursuit of holiness. And Lord, that it would not be something that we simply give up on because we just don't know what it necessarily entails. But as we keep you as the measuring stick and your word as our standard of faith and practice, may it be you that we constantly strive to look more like. Help us encourage us, strengthen us from day to day. May we honor you and please you with all of our efforts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.